Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and we are going into the doctor's bag today with medical politics, Shakespeare, myth takes, and more with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. We see your medical bag. <laughs> We're going inside, Christina. Yoo-hoo! Yeah, love that. How are you today? Wonderful. And Today's a big day. We're going inside the doctor's bag, and as always, when we go inside the doctor's bag, we like to cover a lot of interesting topics, and I hope today they'll be fairly interesting for uh, at least uh, some of you in different aspects. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. And along with Christina, I will be your guide today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. Here we go. Yeah. Well, almost here we go. Now, anytime during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Um, and you can do it at any time. You, if you're listening to this show uh, or watching the show a year later, six months later, it's fine. We will... Be sure to pass your message on to Dr. Woolman or reply to it. Now, if you're listening listening to this as a podcast, you are welcome to give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. And be sure to leave your contact information and we will get back to you as well, um, whether it be by email or giving you a call directly. Thank you, Doc. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, we love uh, hearing from viewers and listeners and everyone, no matter when it is, because even if it comes later, it, it reminds us of things, and we go back and we get to communicate again with the people that we had interviewed at, at other times. So it's always good to have that connection again in case something new might have come up, we can add to it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, so we encourage that. So the first part of the show today, I want to talk about, uh, if you remember, we've been keeping up with the Senate Bill 128 in California, which is the End of Life Option Act. As you know, it it passed the Senate and it went to the Assembly. And what happened was in the Assembly, there was a very big fight and a lot of people were arguing it on both sides very passionately. In fact, there was one uh, headline that came up. Uh, about this that said California House hearing Tuesday on dangerous bill to legalize assisted suicide. Oh no. So that's really? how yeah, that's how they promoted it. <sighs> well, what happened was that there were a few, you know, there's a lot of good people in the assembly and the senate that are trying to do good things, certainly. So <clears throat> there were some concerns in certain areas and we we not we, but they uh decided to amend it in a few different ways. So it went from Senate Bill 128 to Assembly Bill 15, Hmm. and it's the reintroduction of the Life Option Act. And two of the amendments that they made, uh, one was an amendment to make sure uh, that this was written into the bill, that when a patient who went through all of the process of all of the diagnosis and the, the, the requests and everything else, finally got the pills. Within, about, I think, 24 hours or 48 hours, I'd have to look it up, actually, but I think it was about 48 hours. Yeah, it's 48 hours. Uh, before they act- after they received the pill, 48 hours before they took it, they had to fill out another form that, again, 
convinced other people that they were in their right mind, they knew what they were doing, they knew what the outcome was going to be. And so this became part of the bill that people accepted. Another part of the bill was to protect uh, people that may be onlookers from being accused of accessory to mm. either a suicide or, you know, in some cases, you know, some people would consider it a murder. And the third part of the bill, which was very interesting, is they put a sunset clause on it. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but no. it basically a sunset clause means that even though they're passing it as a bill, at some point it's going to cease to become a bill. Uh, and what it is is in January, uh, January 1st of 2026, if this passes, then it will cease to become a bill. Now, there are two ways that they can make this change. One is if they decide to extend it, and another is if they reintroduce it and uh, vote on it again and, and extend it for life or in perpetuity, uh, etc. So what's happening now is that it's gone back to the assembly, and they're having a very passionate discussion on this, and it's very interesting to listen to the different sides. And everybody sees things from different points of view. There are, there are um, fiscal aspects of it. There are health aspects of it. There are religious and spiritual aspects of it. There's um, just basic pain and suffering and humanity aspects of it. And each person that's going up uh, to speak to the assembly to either be pro or con is very passionate about what they want. Uh, but I think, you know, from my point of view, this is an important bill. And the reason we keep bringing this up is because it's necessary to talk about. And I have a feeling that it's going to be coming to your state at some point in life if you don't have it yet. And since most states don't have it, uh, it may be something to follow, and certainly mm -hmm. right now. So what's happening right now is it's, it's in the assembly, and they're discussing it, and they're going to vote on it. And when they vote on it, they're going to, it's probably going to be one of three things, either to amend it again, which I doubt that will happen, or it will pass, or it will fail. If enough I votes have it, then it will pass. And because it was amended, it will have to go back to the Senate where it was originally produced because it's no longer the similar Senate bill. So then mm. the Senate will have to look at it again and vote on it. And if they ch make changes, it'll have to go back and forth. But unfortunately, this, has, this bill has a timeline on it. So my thinking is that if it doesn't end this September, it will stop. And then what will happen is... If the people, and there's been a poll at, at Berkeley, put out a poll recently, and it showed that 70% 70, 70 of Californians actually believe in this bill. So the other option that people always have is to make put it on as a referendum and vote on it by the people. And if, if the uh, Assembly and the, and the Senate don't vote on it, don't pass it, we the people can still choose to put it on the next ballot as a vote and let the people decide. But if they choose it, then we move forward on that. Mm. It's very interesting. So I basically, one of the reasons that we do this is because I'm very passionate about this, and I believe that this is an important aspect of humanity, life, medicine, etc. Of course, there are many arguments, but all it is is an option. 
It's not something that anyone is required to do, and it's a very rigorous bill that a lot mm. of people put a lot of time in to make sure that it covered as many aspects that we worried about as possible, such as what if the person has dementia and, and they don't know what they're doing? Well, then they can't get the pill. Right. You know, they have to be of sound mind and body, and it's proved in everything. So that's why I'm so passionate about this, and that's why I keep bringing it up to people, mm-hmm. not just for California, but for all over the country and all over the world, where you know we have to be looking at, at life as very important, but, and always looking for new ways to help people. You know, so if we can extend life with quality and without too much suffering, that's good. And that's always an option that medicine looks at. But in this particular case, um, this is just an option. So mm-hmm. we will see. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, Glenn, do we know um, other countries that have the right to end of life? There's uh, In Belgium, they have this. In the Netherlands, they have this. A uh, few mm-hmm. other countries have this. and they, But they have different versions of it. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people look at this from different points of view. Some of the people here look at it and say, well, we don't have the same economics that they do. We don't have the same uh, belief systems that they do. So they usually those the proponents on both sides mm-hmm. uh, look at it and try to promote their biggest aspect sure. of it, and the same as in our country where it's in Oregon and a, and a few other states. Um, you know, people that are looking to promote it uh, point out the good points. People that are looking to uh, stop it are trying to prove the bad points. But my sense is that they're although passionate and spiritual. The bad point arguments don't uh, trump the mm. good point arguments. Yes, I I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 very interesting. Um, just wrapping my head around and and attempting to understand how a bill is passed and how it goes through such rigorous voting and debating before it is even considered. That, to me, is another reason that I like to bring this up, and that's why I call it medical politics. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's interesting uh, that people should know about it, that it isn't just a couple of people up in some congressional area just get together and flip a coin and decide Mm -hmm. on something. There's rigorous debate. There's rigorous discussion. There's lots of communication. There's lots of compromise. Somebody brings up a point that they're worried about, and the people uh, on another side will try and uh, figure out a way to make it so that they're not worried about that anymore. So it goes through a lot, and this is an important part of our legislative process that even from a magical medical tourist point of view, I think it's very good for people to know, especially when there's an issue about health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, <clears throat> and I love issues about health, as you know. <laughs> But I'm finding this very fascinating also in terms of the legal aspects of this and how the legislation does work with all the readings and hearings and committees, uh, multiple committees and back and forth and everything else. Uh, I was able to, they they have a website and I, I encourage people to do this periodically. There's a website that you can actually go to that, uh, you can watch the California Senate and the Assembly voting and discussing things and and how they uh, call something to order and the and the ways that they uh, promote and discuss and vote 
you know, now one of the most interesting things, obviously, um, many years ago, it was always a vote by somebody would write in their vote and they would hand it and then the clerk would count up all the votes, etc. And then they went to voice votes occasionally where the everyone would go, I, the senator from, uh, you know, the county of Orange would would vote I or or nay or something like that. But now it's done by computer. So all of the so when the uh, speaker pro tem or the speaker of the assembly uh, asks for a vote, everybody is sitting at their desk and you can see up on the screen a list of each member and uh, they call for the vote and everybody votes uh, I or no. And you could watch it happening, and you could see the tally happening. It's it's kind of interesting. Well, so, so they actually list the individuals and what their, what their vote is. Absolutely, and that's a part of legislation also, so that mm. you, as a person in your community, if you're seeing that your assembly person or your senator is always voting the way that you like, then you try and keep voting for them. Mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. see that they're voting yes. in a way that you don't like, then you understand their record and you do everything you can to move them out and vote for someone that does vote your way. Mm -hmm. That's what, Mm -hmm. that's all of politics. And it's fascinating to see how it actually works. And especially when it gets combined with medicine. Now, obviously there's many other areas that they talk about, not just medicine, but uh, all sorts of laws. Every law that's produced goes through this process or some kind of a process. Oh my goodness! Well, we so keep we will our, see. We should yes. know. We should know very soon what's going to happen, and <clears throat> keep tuned to um, us and to your own uh, papers. Yes, Glenn. What is that uh, website that you are referring to? Oh man, I have know? to. I will have to put it on again. Uh, I will make we'll sure just it, make sure that it's on the site so people can go go see yes, it later. Yeah, I, I will do that. It, it's really fun to watch it. Sometimes it doesn't always come in so clear, and there's lots of uh, standard procedures that are somewhat boring. But uh, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, it's pretty exciting. Mm. Okay, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. That yes, really, this is very on. important to keep watching on this. So the next thing I want to talk about, and this is more in medicine, the CDC that we talk about, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, has put out a notice recently that says, keep your eye out for the plague. Now, we're going to talk about the plague Mm -hmm. today, and the reason we're talking about this is that uh, in 2015, 11 cases of the plague have been recorded in the United States, and three of those people have already died. Uh, the CDC, since 2000, since the year 2000, there's an average of between uh, five and six a year, uh, and this year uh, is the second highest in the United States. And basically, we've seen, and part of the reason we're talking about this now, is two cases uh, they were able to figure out that they either came from Yosemite National Park in California hmm. or the Sierra Nevada Mountains. That's pretty close. Yeah, pretty close. <laughs> oh, my. And so the plague is out there. It's been out there for a long time. And so I want to talk about that for a little while, and then we'll get into actually what the plague is and, um, and what we can do about it, how we should recognize it, what causes it, and uh, go from there. So in antiquity, uh, it, it appears that there was the first 
accounts of the plague actually came from uh, the Hebrew Bible, where they talked about uh, the Philippines who stole the Ark of the Covenant uh, from the Jewish people, which is their highest uh, piece of of relic and learning and teaching. Uh, It's everything that they're about. It was stolen and the Philistines uh, came down with and they described these boils and lesions and everything else and they were all dying from it. So it's possible that this wasn't the actual plague because the plague sometimes they talk about as any major illness and it could be uh, something that crosses the uh, the world. could be usually from a virus like smallpox or typhus or measles or something like that. But in this case, it's a bacteria, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, when the plague, there's been at least three major plagues uh, in the history of our uh, species. One was in around the year 500 A.D., to around 750. A second plague was around 1300 to about 1800. Then there was a third big plague from uh, late 1800s into the 1900s. And just to give you some numbers here to tell you what a plague really means in the sense of why we're concerned about it is the mortality rate of the plague uh, has taken over 3.5 to 5 million deaths in our Species. The first plague uh, went through Egypt and the Mediterranean and Europe. The second plague uh, was started in Central Asia and went through the Mediterranean and Europe. And the third plague uh, probably started in China, went to India, and uh, also came to the west coast of the United States. And what they were able to figure out at one point early on was that it was maybe the grain ships. Uh, were the source of what was causing the plague and being able to travel from one country and one continent to another. At the peak of the plague, uh, there was in Constantinople, which is now Italy, uh, excuse me, Istanbul in Turkey, 10,000 people per day were dying. Wow. Yeah. This is, what, what, um, what, what year was this? This is in around 1300. 1300s? Right. And then uh, it, it, at one point, it, there was also, they predict that there were 100 million people across the world uh, that probably died. Maybe 50 cent, 50% of the European population uh, succumbed to uh this disease. And in Rome, Italy, we actually have a picture of what the doctors used to wear uh, because they didn't know what caused it. So they were very fearful. You can imagine people dying everywhere, households, people running and panicking and not knowing what the cause was. And you can see this picture. And I actually have here uh, uh, the actual mask that the doctors wore. And they would stuff this mask with herbs and spices in hopes of being able to uh, prevent themselves from getting the disease, even though they didn't know how the disease came mm. about. So mm, wow. this, this disease also had the name of the Black Death or the Black Plague. And, and basically, it was the largest death toll from any known non-viral epidemic in, in the history of us. And basically, so what happened in the the last plague that started in China in around the 1800s, 1894, 
two bacteriologists, two scientists, uh, a man named Yersen uh, from Swiss, Switzerland and France, and uh, a Japanese man named Shibasabatu, Buro, Shibasaburo, uh, isolated the actual bacteria. And eventually it was called for one of the people, Yersinia pestis, and we have a picture of that. It's magnified a lot, but this is the actual bacteria that causes what we now call as the bubonic plague, and I'll explain that in just a minute or two. And then in 1898, a French scientist named Simone finally figured out that the flea, a special type of flea, was the vector for this Mm. disease. So this is how, and we have a picture of that flea also. So it's very interesting that in epidemiology and science, you know, first we see people dying for unknown causes. And, of course, people made up decisions of what it was, uh, religious reasons and spiritual reasons and political reasons, whatever, military reasons. But eventually we were able to see the scientists come in, go to Hong Kong when one of the epidemics was happening and discover the actual cause. And once we knew the cause, then we were able to figure out how to uh, prevent it. So let's talk about this for a few minutes. Here's what happens. We see, we see that it's basically an infected rodent, and it's usually a rat. Sometimes it could be a squirrel or something else, but let's stay with the rat hypothesis right now. And this is a little bit of chicken and egg, which comes first, but you have to get an infected rat. And the infected rat gets infected from a flea that bites it. But once the rat is infected, this flea gets onto the rat and starts sucking the blood out of the rat with a bite. And it pulls the infected bacteria into its stomach, the stomach of the flea. And as the flea... Uh, brings in more and more, drinking, engorging itself with this bloody mixture uh, with bacteria, the Yersinia pestis bacteria, it actually, the bacteria coagulate or group together and block the stomach of the flea. So eventually the flea keeps on eating, but it can't actually take in food and assimilate it so that it stays alive. What happens then is the flea, which is now infected, will get onto a a human, and then it will bite the human. And when it bites the human, it's trying to suck the blood out of the human, which is its natural uh, way of getting nourishment. But because the stomach is blocked by these bacteria, it causes the flea to vomit and regurgitate all of these bacteria into the skin and into the bite of the human. And that is how the infection starts. So the flea vomits up the bacteria into the bite, and then this this group of bacteria move through the, the interstitial tissue and eventually get picked up by the lymph nodes. And it goes by the lymph system, actually. And when it goes... Through the lymph system, it gets to a lymph node. And when a lymph node gets uh, saturated or supersaturated with so much of this uh, bacteria, the lymph nodes swell. And this is where 
uh, back in antiquity, they called it buboes. And that's how the name bubonic plague came, because mm. the buboes, they would see the buboes or the swollen lymph nodes behind the knee, under the armpits, in the neck, in all sorts of regions. And this, uh, aside from the symptoms that would be from almost any bacterial process, uh, fever and malaise, etc., not feeling well, they also had these mm. big swellings. And when the lymph nodes would actually get so supersaturated, they would actually, aside from the bacteria uh, and the size, the bacteria would emit these toxins, which would cause hemorrhage. And then the uh, lymph node would break, causing the bacteria to then go into the bloodstream. And then this would add a whole other set of symptoms. For example, when it gets into small blood vessels, it'll clog up the blood vessels. The uh, tissue will start to die, become necrotic, as we call it. Gangrene can set in. uh, And people start losing their limbs. So it's very ugly. And their skin turns black. And this is why they also called it, aside from the bubonic plague, the uh, black death. Mm. You know? Oh, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty vicious, huh? It's pretty vicious, and it's like I said, it wiped out you know fifty percent of of uh, parts of Europe, parts of China, parts of uh, Africa, throughout. So that's the process of how it happens, and wherever the bacteria get, these are the kind of th- symptoms you can have. So uh, it can get into your lungs, and you can have respiratory sy- symptoms. It can get into your brain and central nervous system. You could have uh, signs of uh, in- inflammations and infection of the brain and the nervous system. It can get to many parts of the body, and usually, uh, once you start having these symptoms you're dead within hours to days. Mm. So part of the reason I'm bringing this up uh, is to let people know that since the CDC is offering a warning right now and the plague is still in the United States and it's here and we've had some people die of it this year, uh, in the year 2015, thought it would be a good idea for people to know about. It could be transmitted by direct contact. It could be transmitted by droplets with coughing from a person. Once a person has it, they can transmit it a different way. So the flea has to bite them or they have to be infected by touching soil that's been infected or uh, by eating food that's been infected. Now, we do have, uh, since these people discovered the bacteria and uh, the causes and vectors, we have ways of taking care of it. So clearly, for example, in Yosemite, when they recognized that there might have been a problem with rodents, they closed down parts of the village and, and uh, cleaned the whole place out, you know, sterilized it, got rid of the rodents, uh, and cleaned it up, and then it becomes safe again. But it's very important for us to know that if you have symptoms, and if you've been in one of these areas and you start having symptoms like a cold with uh, malaise or fever or just not feeling well, and you know you've been in that area, very important to go to your doctor. Because although most of these sound, when I told you those things, they really sound like viruses. It sounds like the flu or just you have an upper respiratory infection, so you don't think too much of it. But the point is that if it is a virus, then we don't usually have as many treatments for it. But if it is the plague, we actually do have treatments for it. And the treatments are very Mm -hmm. simple, and it's highly effective. If the doctor knows about it, uh, 
they can do a blood test, but by the time you get the blood test back, you will have wanted to be on the medication. And it's usually just simple antibiotics. So that's why I'm bringing this up. If you go to one of these places and you have symptoms of something, very important to probably chat with your doctor about it. They do have a vaccine for it, but the vaccine is not recommended by the CDC uh, for the general population. It's really recommended for uh, scientists, bacteriologists that are working specifically with this Yersinia pestis uh, bacteria for people that might be going into a zone where it's happening, say healthcare workers, you know, doctors without borders or people like that that are going into an area where there might be a plague, those people might get the vaccine for it. Oh my goodness. So basically, that's about it. So, so how do you think those two died from it? Do you think that they waited too long? Lee? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what happens is you think, I have the flu. Or I have just a, a virus, you know. It's, it's not something spectacular. The big buboes, the big swellings um, don't occur right away or the necrosis or the real bad disease. But if you think about it, when you get the flu, what are your symptoms? A little fever, you don't feel good, you're tired, you're achy. So the symptoms are very vague. Mm-hmm. And these people probably not thinking about anything and someone going, I don't feel well. Uh, you just got the flu, you know, you've been away and you'll be okay. Here, take some aspirin or take some Tylenol, take some fluids, take some chicken soup. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, chicken soup doesn't work. Mm, No. (laughs) In every other case, probably it does work, but not with the bubonic plague, Mm, mm. the buboes. So so you know that that there is a a definite issue when those buboes start to show up. When those buboes start to show up, most likely you're not going to live. And that's wow. what people saw back in the, you know, these were medieval times where right. we didn't really know too much about bacteria and, and everyone was just fearful. And can you imagine being in Istanbul mm. uh, at a time when 10,000 people per day or so were dying? Wow. You know, and it's scary and you don't know what's causing it. Now, interestingly, throughout history, uh, military uh, leaders have used the bubonic plague, uh, to their Mm. advantage. They didn't know what the cause was, but they would take dead animals and they would sneak them into villages or into the army camps of the enemy and Mm. wait for these people to get sick and die. Germ germ warfare, right? Biological warfare. Biological warfare. Yeah, started back, you know, know, before the common era. Mm-hmm. Everybody was using this, and there's lots of there's lots of military history, and people discuss uh, the possibilities. Did this help this group of people win the war over that group? Uh, and uh, there's lots of interesting topics uh, written about that, you know, in terms of uh, biological warfare, etc. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing is very interesting in the way that uh, we learn about disease. We see what happens, and we see the way that the medical community tried to cheat it. When, when you look at that costume that the doctors were wearing mm-hmm. at that time to protect themselves, yeah, uh, yeah it's it's very interesting. And the way that the epidemiologists go about you, these are brave people. Can you imagine that right now? Let's say in Hong Kong, there was a there was some kind of a disease that was killing thousands of people a day. Could you imagine 
your idea to say, oh, I think I'm going to go over there and try and help and figure it out. Most people would want to stay away from there, but these brave bacteriologists mm-hmm. and scientists would go there and they would do the science and they would do the studies at risk of their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. so, you know, I, I always like to uh, honor Mm-hmm. The process of of the science trying to figure it all out. Well, Losing that, my uh, earphone here. Um, thank goodness, uh, this day and age, they do have those wonderful suits that they can put on. Yeah, they now have the hazmat suits, yes. etc. Yeah, I mean, so that's very good. And we have better science now. You you know, sometimes you don't even have to go there. You can uh, scientists in that area there can can take blood samples and urine samples and tissue samples and send it all around the world Mm -hmm. to help other people diagnose it. But still, even, you know, every bacteriologist that's working anywhere in the country for any infectious disease or any uh, infectious disease person, we've interviewed a few on our show. In fact, they do an amazing job. And I love that about what they do. So, so, so what do you, what do you think? I mean, how, I mean, how would we know? It's like, it's like when you go camping and, or you go for a hike in the woods these days. I mean, you have, now we have to worry about the ticks because of the Lyme disease. Now fleas, now fleas are all over the place. And I, I hear that recently in San Diego now they have to spray to try to get rid of a lot of fleas. <laughs> uh, one of the things that is very important in terms of your question of how do we know is, and we have discussed this many times, Christina, is that the history is very important. Uh, So when you go in to see your doctor, it's important to have a history and to be able to say, oh, I was in Yosemite last week and I, and I listened to magical medical tour and they said that uh, the plague was there, but you need to be able to have a history and you as uh, the patient needs to bring in as much knowledge as possible to the doctor. So when you have these symptoms, under most circumstances, if you've just been in your house and not exposed to anyone with anything, then you probably just have the virus. But on the other hand, if you uh, have been in a place where you know something is going on and you get something, or if you have flea bites on you and you get concerned, even if you get a little more paranoid than you necessarily need to be because it was just a regular flea bite and not too much is going to happen from it because the this particular flea didn't have the Yersinia pestis bacteria in it, you're going to be fine. But if you have the flea bite, you're not feeling too well, get to your doctor and with your doctor, you can make a a decision that will be in your best behalf. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, are they able to, because the symptoms are so common, I want to say common, because it's a fever, is you know, maybe a, a slight cold symptoms, etc., mm-hmm. would they be able to pick it up through a blood test? Yes, they can pick it up through the blood test, but the problem is that usually the blood test takes a little while. So while you're doing the blood test, most likely, if there's enough good evidence of your history, uh, and your concern, you know, if you say, doctor, I was in Yosemite staying in that uh, lodge where someone else died from uh, the plague and I had flea bites and now I have these symptoms, most likely the doctor is going to say, well, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't really want to give you an antibiotic, but because this is so deadly, right. I'm going to give you the antibiotic and we can wait for the lab tests 
and go from there. And if the lab tests come back, we can take you off the antibiotic. But if they come back negative, mm. if they come back positive, then we're really glad we put you on the antibiotic. But it's a simple, it, wow. in most cases, it's a simple treatment. You know, mm. I mean, it's almost, you've heard of doxycycline? Yes. Okay, that's one of the treatments for it. So you, people have taken doxycycline for a number of things. Sometimes you take it for a toothache or an infected tooth. So it's not, it's not necessarily one of these vague experimental medications that, like chemotherapy. Right. It's more simple antibiotics, and there's a whole number of them. And what, what may happen over time if the plague comes back uh, more virulent in a way uh, they may develop resistance and we may have to change. But right now, it's pretty simple. Like I said, there's only been 11 in the United States. But still, you know, if one of the things we always talk about with statistics, Christina, is, mm-hmm. you know, it's very tough to come up to the person who's the only one in the history of our species that has this type of brain tumor. The statistics do not mean anything to them at that point. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> right? And so you could say, yeah, but... You know, you're, you're the only one that has this, or you, it's only one in 52 billion. But if you're that one, it, it makes a difference. Mm, mm. So really important, mm. the, the basic thing is to know a little bit about the plague, know that it exists, know that it's out there right now, and especially in the Western states, uh, just be aware of it. And if you have some symptoms, go see your doctor and talk about it. It's much better to do it that way than to be uh, dead. I guess that's an easy way to say that. <laughs> that's uh, putting it really straightforward yeah. and simple. <laughs> High level of wisdom here on Magical Medical Tour. It's better than being dead. There we go. Okay. Wow. That's uh, Now we have to be cautious when we're out there hiking. Yeah. And also, you know, you can get it from a flea. It's not just from the rat and the flea. Sometimes yes. an infected squirrel, even a, one of your pets that can get, if they get infected by one of those fleas uh, and they have it, you can get it from your pets also. Mm. But it's, it's got to be with that bacteria. Now, throughout history also, there have been many episodes of what they call pandemic or worldwide uh, diseases that... Uh, they thought was the plague, but interestingly now, the science with DNA testing and a number of other things, there were a few times throughout history uh, in ancient times that they were able to go to burial sites and get tissue, uh, sometimes dental tissue or other pieces of of bodies that were in mass graves, for example, mm-hmm. and test them with DNA, and they found that they were not actually the... Uh, Yersinia pestis, hmm. but they were viruses like smallpox or uh, typhus. I see, or something like that. So they have done DNA testing, and in fact, they were able to f- do the same thing with the plague when they looked at the you know the plague that caused the the major problem in the world, uh, killing uh, half of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. They were able to go back to those mass graves and do the DNA testing. And in fact, it was the Yersinia pestis, Mm. uh, the one that we have the picture of. I guess we should have at the very beginning of the show mentioned that there will be visuals on this show. Oh, what were mentioned? Actually, I think it was pretty early that we were talking about the photos, so we should be okay. (laughs) We can always always put a little note on the, on the website itself. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 
All right, so uh, I think that's it, unless you have more questions about how you can get it, what the treatment is, why, it's, why it comes about. No, I mean, this is, you are so thorough with this. I, I'm just thinking, okay, next hike, be careful. <laughs> yeah, be very careful. Please spray and, everything. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the things, you bring up a very interesting point, especially also about the ticks and Lyme disease mm. that we've talked about, remember, with uh, Barbara Abruzzo and yes. her bout with Lyme disease from a tick. Yep. Um, I think it's very important when you go out into nature, as much as we love nature and want to be out in nature, that when you come home, that you do a thorough examination on yourself. And if you have someone, you know, a loved one that is willing to do an examination on you on the parts that you can't see as easily, very important. Go Mm -hmm. through this very carefully. They could be in your hair. They could be on the bottom of your foot. They could be on your back. So I think that's a very good point that you bring up, that when you do your nature hikes, uh, do an examination on yourself and make Mm. sure you are okay. And then just be aware if you start developing symptoms, keep in mind that you are out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Ah, okay. (laughs) All right, we're finished with the plague. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing that it's still around. I love that mask, by the way. That's a... Very cool mask. It's great. They were using these in Rome. It's, uh, yeah, I love getting this. I was very happy to be able to get this. All right, so now we're going to move away from the plague, and we're going to another por- portion of the show that we introduced a few uh, sessions ago. And I think, I don't know if we ever agreed on the name or agreed on the musical. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, hum something for me or give us a fanfare of some kind. Oh, oh, oh. That was it? No, oh, 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 I don't know. Oh. <laughs> We're going to do myth takes. Myth this takes. is where we look at some of the myths that go around our society all myth the time. Takes. Myth the mistake, takes. The mistakes of our society. The myth mistakes takes. of our society that promote myths that aren't necessarily true, and we're trying to uh, correct those. So the one that I've chosen today... Uh, is, Christina, how, you've probably heard this. What percentage of the brain do we use? The myth is that we use about 10% of our brain. Right. You ever heard that? Yes. Okay. I've heard that since I was like really little. Really little. Yes. So that's, that's the big deal. So where did this come from? Well, some people say it came. Albert Einstein made a comment about it, but there's no actual reference to it. There's, uh, there's a psychologist and author named James who wrote about that we don't use all of the potential of our brain. Uh, there were neurosurgeons in the 1900s and uh, in the early 1900s and neuroscientists that would see parts of the brain, uh, small areas, but they didn't know what they were about. And so they made these decisions uh, or allegedly made some decisions that we're not really using all of our brain. We only use 10% of it. And then what happened was that there were other people that were trying to promote things. Self-help people were trying to promote it. People that were, had these elixirs that say with this, you can, you can develop powers in your brain for great memory and to be able to do superhuman things, and even maybe to do telekinesis or move objects once we use all of our brain. Because we're only using 10%, there's that other part that is making it so that 
we could do magical things. And this is why the myths continue. But if you think about it, uh, the brain, the human brain is incredibly complex. Think of all the things it does. You know, when you, uh, just to take a shower, to get the soap, to turn the shower on, to wash yourself in different ways. All of the little tasks that we do during the day, that's coming from the brain. And at the same time, we're also uh, thinking about things. Someone, you know, uh, uh, an orchestra or a musician might be uh, thinking of a new concerto or uh, an artist is thinking about a painting and, and some mathematician might be trying to figure out an equation, all of these things. And then the spiritual aspects of what our brain does, totally complex. And you can't imagine that only 10% of our brain would be used for that. But now we have evidence so the evidence comes from studying people that have had brain damage, either from a traumatic incident or from a stroke or from a neurosurgical procedure. Uh, so we know parts of the brain from that. We also have metabolic types of studies, and we have uh, what I talk about all the time now with our neuroimaging and functional MRIs, functional brain MRIs, where we can see when somebody is angry, this part of the brain is lighting up. When someone is happy or when someone is sexually aroused, uh, these parts of the brain are lighting up. And we're seeing how the brain works. And what we're seeing basically is that we use 100% of our brain. Mm. So the myth of 10%, not true. We use 100% of our brain now you can say that at certain times, parts of the brain won't be used as much during sleep. Certain parts of the brain may quiet down a little bit, but the brain is never totally quiet, and every part is being used. Mm. And I, I really like I'm going to tell my brain that. Yeah, you tell your brain yes. that. Uh, <laughs> you know, so what, what we may be able to say in reality is that in terms of the 10%, we may only know about how 10% of the brain functions. Mm-hmm. So that part, that part may be something where we can't perpetuate the myth that we only use 10% of the brain. We're using all of the brain. Every part of it is being used as long as it is healthy and uh, functioning appropriately. Mm-hmm. So if when next time you hear somebody say, uh, we only use 10% of our brain, you can say to them, no, that's not true. We actually use 100% of our brain. That and controls everything. Now, now so, so as far as, as um, people's capabilities are concerned, like, for example, um, I, I always think of the brain like a muscle that... that you have to nurture it, you have to feed it, and, and then it, it's able to take in the information that you're feeding it. Um, I, I mean, that's... I, I always wonder if that's what they mean by the 10%, as opposed to not using the whole brain. Their brain is always functioning, but it's the capabilities of the brain. We have capabilities but this is not because of the brain itself the Mm -hmm. brain when you say it's like muscle it's not really like muscle but it is in the sense that muscle has cells Mm -hmm. just like 
we always talk about cells. Well, there are different types of cells in the brain. There are nerve cells, neuron cells. And remember, in one of our discussions inside the doctor's bag, we talked about the interstitial or connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's lots of connective tissue in the brain that supports it. And we don't even know half of what that does yet. Uh, And that's where the fantastic part of this is coming. But certainly, getting back to your point of we have to feed it, the brain certainly uses energy. In fact, uh, the brain, which weighs about three pounds, 1,400 grams, something like that. So if you you cut the brain down to only a tenth of the brain, you would have 0.3 pounds of brain, three-tenths of a pound of brain, and we can't do much with that. (laughs) But... One of the important things is that the brain requires energy, and energy comes from food. So it is very important. If you remember, Dr. Mikio Sanke one time uh, in one of his interviews talked about, um, you know, be careful what you eat, because if you're eating a hot dog, that hot dog may be, the, the, at that time, goes to the brain and feeds the brain hot dog cells, you know, so to speak. <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little funny here, but... Uh, it's very important to take care of our brains because of what they do. So we need to have the right nutrition. We need to have the right relaxation. We need the right amount of sleep. Sleep is an important aspect of the brain. We've talked about that many times uh, where the brain cleans itself out during sleep, but it's still working. But the important thing is, can we do more with the brain? Yes, we can. Will we learn more about it over time? Yes, we will. There will be scientific studies that we'll talk about. We'll learn more about memories. We'll be able to, I think I even mentioned this before, we'll be able to at some point consider implanting memories in someone that's never had Mm. them. So you can enjoy a trip to Italy, for example, and never go there. But there's a lot of things that are happening. This, This is where in the final frontier of the central nervous system and the brain is uh, something that's fascinating. We're learning more and more about. We probably have a lot more to go in how we actually do things and how we actually can improve our brains and improve our thinking abilities. Certainly patterns of behavior help us to focus, but we also need to make sure that our brain is nutritionally sound and healthy with enough oxygen and nutrients and relaxation and keeping stress and inflammation away. Mm. Here, here. That's uh, just good basic health, isn't it? Good basic health. But mm-hmm. we've hopefully, do you believe now that we use only 10% of our brain? No, of course not. Then we've busted a we've myth, busted haven't we? busted a myth. We've gone Ta-da! through a myth take. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's it. That's, that's our new, uh, that's our new uh, fanfare. It's so funny because the last myth um, you had given, one of the myths was about eating before swimming. Mm-hmm. And now I, I don't even bat an eye when my son eats and then decides to go into the pool. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, just take it easy. That's all, you know. <laughs> That's great. Well, we, we're busting myths everywhere. Love it. So people should be following Magical Medical Tour just to find out what myths that they should stop following. Yes, I think we should just have one show on myths. The five-minute myth. Yeah, we can do that. (laughs) Although I must say that when we did our first show on myths, and I did a number of them, it seemed like it got a little long. So one one at a time. Yeah. So it's one little podcast. Oh, okay. I see what you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm good for that. A myth a day. Myth a day. There you go. It's (laughs) mythology. Love it.
So we're coming to near the end of the show, and mm-hmm. I wanted to take a few moments to honor somebody that passed away recently, Dr. Wayne Dyer. He was born on May 10th in 1940 in Detroit, Michigan, and he died August 29th of 2015 on Maui in Hawaii. That's a nice path mm. in itself. And uh, before I talk about him, I want to uh, I want to bring in Shakespeare. And before I bring in Shakespeare, I want to apologize to Shakespeare and to all the Shakespearean actors and scholars and <laughs> and every every dramatist in the world, uh, every actor and anyone who loves theater. But I'm going to do my attempt at Shakespeare in honor of. Uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, and it'll become obvious soon. This comes from uh, Julius Caesar, Mm. uh, Act 3, Scene 2. It's one of the more famous uh, quoted uh, passages in Shakespeare, other than things from maybe Hamlet and, of course, many other areas. But it's spoken by Marcus Antonius or Mark Antony in the Forum to the People. So bear with me. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is off interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it were a grievous fault. So even in Shakespeare's time, he understood that ambition as a process could be a grievous fault. And he even alluded to the fact that the Romans, as ambitious people and certain leaders, uh, could have grievous consequences from their ambitions. One of the things that Dr. Wayne Dyer promoted on his path to growth, spiritual growth and happiness was going from ambition to meaning. And that's, that's a key in, in almost everything he talks about. So when you're trying to become a better person in your life, you go from using ambition as the motivating source to meaning to be the motivating source. He was a, a self-help, self-help author. He authored many, many books. He was inspiring as a motivational speaker. He focused on improvement by way of spiritual growth. He, de- he got his doctoral degree in educational counseling, and he spent uh, the rest of his life writing books, teaching people uh, how to become better. His, uh, his first book was called Your Erroneous Zones, and I like that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sold over 35 million copies and it's still uh, selling to more and more people. Each generation that picks it up, uh, more and more people are reading it. Uh, so I think he's an important person that's made an important um, influence on health. And that's why I wanted to honor him today in Magical Medical Tour. He's a great person. He died. He, left eight, he had eight children. He wrote many, many books. He's been on television. He's made movies. And I recommend if people get an opportunity to see his movie, The Shift, 
get take an opportunity to see that and you'll learn some very interesting things. He said, if you believe it will work out, you'll see opportunities. If you believe it won't, you will see obstacles. And I think that, you know, when I look at myself sometimes and I look at a some idea of something that I'm thinking about and I have to do something with it, if I start thinking about it negatively, all the obstacles come up and it's an obvious reason why I shouldn't even, you know, undertake this process. And then if I just change and I sit back for a second and I say, well, let's try it a different way, then suddenly opportunities come up and it's a great thing. And I love that. So I wanted to take a moment to uh, honor Dr. Wayne Dyer. We'll all miss him. Mm. Have you ever had any experiences with him? No, not at all. Not personally. Not personally. Uh-huh. I've heard a lot about him. And, and as I was saying before the show, that we were, I was hoping to meet him because we were supposed to, I do believe, be on the same cruise at the end of this month. So he, he took people on cruises to very important places. He took groups of people to uh, Assisi, where St. Francis was. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they did lots of searches and in terms of spiritual growth and healing. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was all about. You know, taking your the purpose in life for ambition. How much can I get? What can I own? Uh, look at all these things I have to a sense of of uh, purpose and meaning and service. And uh, I think because of that, we'll all honor him and all of the great things he did. You know, he actually, it was interesting, from what I read, he actually, in Detroit, Michigan, he started out living in orphanages and in foster homes, so probably didn't have a a perfect uh, life at some point, and this may be part of the process that uh, led him on his own path to mm-hmm. spiritual growth, and he was fortunate, and we were fortunate enough that he was uh, very proficient in writing, and he uh, was able to promote and improve people's lives in many different ways. He was very motivating. He was. Some people called him the father of motivation. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty good. And I think what I'd like to do as we come to the end of our show, I'm going to leave a health tip, which is going to be a quote from uh, Dr. Uh, Wayne Dyer, unless you wanted to go over something else first. No, actually, I read something um, very interesting uh, when I found out that he had passed away, that uh, through his journey... And I didn't realize that he was living in orphanages and all. But through his journey, when he was able to actually bring himself to go to his father's gravesite, was um, the date that he actually finally brought himself to be able to do that, to bring himself to his father's gravesite. And right after his visit to that gravesite is when he started to become very prolific in his healing and writing. And shortly after, weeks after that visit to the gravesite was when he wrote Euronius Zones. Mm. And to the day of his death, he died on the same day as the visit to that gravesite. Wow. I didn't know that. And that's pretty interesting also. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, thing, things are connected, huh? Yeah, very much so. What a so beautiful here's path. One, here's one of his quotes. That I like. He's got so many that are great quotes, but since we're so interested in nutrition all the time, I thought this would be a kind of a cute little quote. But it, 
it like everything else you know when you listen on its superficial value it's cute but when you look at it with more depth uh it starts to make you think about things so here's the quote and here's the health tip when you squeeze an orange orange juice comes out because that's what's inside when you are squeezed what comes out is what's inside <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, I really like that. I was hoping you would. And oh, I hope, yes. I hope that all of our listeners and viewers like that and learn from it because, you know, and but unlike an orange where it's always going to be an orange, uh, if you're squeezed and something comes out that you don't like, that's when you can start looking at Dr. Wayne Dyer's uh, advice and change yourself so mm. that what's inside of you is what comes out when you are squeezed. Mm, lovely. Oh, I like that tip. <laughs> <laughs> it's so simple and yet so profound. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's one of those things. Very nice. Well, I'm grateful for all of our viewers and listeners for listening to Magical Medical Tour and supporting us. Grateful to you, Christina, and Yoga Hub and uh, Segovia for putting together uh, our program and making it available to everyone. I'd also like to thank, as always, my teachers and all of my healers for allowing me to be on my journey. And I look forward to getting together with Christina and all of you again on Magical Medical Tour when we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. But until that time, until our next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> and of course, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another great show into your doctor's bag. And we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com where we always encourage you to learn about his metaphor, square breath. Now, when you uh, watch or listen to our podcast, you know, it'd be really wonderful if you could like us or pass our link on to others that you know will benefit from our shows. Um, and of course, we're always very grateful for your suggestions and feedback, comments. Just give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Namaste.